came here, all right, and had a sour taste on our mouth Sunday, did we not? Yes, sir. And I asked you to respond. Offense, defense, special teams, all of it out there, picking each other up. That's what great teams do, guys. We pick each other up. But I am so proud of you for how you responded, okay? I asked you to own it, flush it. We did. I trust the people in this room, and we're going to do it together, all right? The show is PFT Live, presented by Google Pixel. Learn more at googlestore.com. Funny to hear Kevin Stefanski say he asked the players to own the loss from Sunday because, frankly, Peter, and I I may have missed it last night on the Amazon pregame show. I didn't watch every minute of it. I don't think I heard it mentioned during the game broadcast. He's the one that owns Sunday's loss, and I'm surprised this hasn't gotten more attention as the week has unfolded. Sims and I have talked about it extensively. Sunday's loss, and I'm sorry, Browns fans, to pick at this scab right out of the gates, but I feel like it hasn't (laughs) properly been dealt with. It was a failure of coaching, situational football. It was clearly on Kevin Stefanski. Kareem Hunt runs out of bounds twice. Nick Chubb caught in no man's land between the two and the goal line. When he's got a first down, the two-minute warning has arrived. All he's got to do is go down or go out of bounds because it's already the two-minute warning. Three knees, you win the game, the Jets never touch the ball, no chance to have the epic comeback. That was never really said at any point during the time I saw last night's game to hammer home the point, and I love Kevin Stefanski as a coach, but that loss was on him. It wasn't on the defense, it wasn't on anyone else but him for not taking advantage, as Bill Belichick would have, of situational football, getting the win, never leaving the door open even ever so slightly, Peter. It just kind of bugs me that, that that hasn't really been the focus it needs to be. And now I will shut up and say, good morning, Peter King. We're here for the next two hours. I feel better. I've purged my frustration, and now we can have a show. Hello. Hello, Uncle Leo. Um, Hello. I guess my point on the whole events of last Sunday are that misery has many fathers. I just invented a terrible <laughs> cliche. But, uh, you know, Cade York and, I mean, there were many things that went wrong. Amari Cooper on the special teams, everything like that. And, Mike, you are right. Obviously, Nick Chubb should have gone down instead of scored a touchdown. But or just step out of bounds. Or just right step out of bounds. Or stepped out of bounds. But you're also right. You're also right in saying that who would be thinking of that at that moment? I could I could see a running back thinking of that when there's 40 seconds to go or 35 seconds, okay? But <clears throat> when there's whatever, a minute plus left, a minute and a healthy plus, whatever it was, you know, left in the game, I don't know that many people are thinking Brian Westbrook at that point. Um, and so I guess my point is, unless you're told in the huddle, hey, listen, don't score. If you get near the goal line, just sit down. That's it. You know, or kneel, do whatever. And that Step wasn't said. So clearly, that's one of the reasons in the debate after, you know, when I was sitting there writing my column Sunday night, who should be go to the week? I was a little bit shallow. I gave it to Cade York for missing the extra point because at the time we didn't truly know everything that happened in the last two minutes of the game, one of which is no one ever told, hey, running backs, if you get the ball, don't score. They scored, and obviously, even though it's, you know, it's like, uh, you know, Fusilli Jerry, it's one in a million, Doc. I mean, it's one in a million that the Jets could have come back the way they did. <laughs> well, I'm just, well, Mike, I'm only yeah. speaking to you in a language that you will I, understand. I, I, I understand, and Kevin Stefanski ended up at the proctologist's office. Uh, but but <laughs> that and the, the point you made, and this, this is one of the benefits to the Browns of week two not being in prime time. 
Week three primetime, they showed up. There were no gaffes. They won the game. It all worked out. If that game on Sunday had been in primetime, Stefanski gets dragged like Nathaniel Hackett did week one because we would have all understood it as it was happening. We would have realized. And you're, you're saying who would have thought of it? Well, Bill Belichick would have thought of it. And that's why he's the greatest. But other coaches should have thought of it. Anybody who plays Madden yeah. would think of it. When you get to that spot where the other team has no timeouts, two minutes left, if you have a first down, the game is over. That's it. The game is over as long as you can execute three kneel downs effectively. And most teams since the Giants and the Eagles in the late 70s with Joe Pasarczyk and Larry Zonka and Herm Edwards have figured out how to execute the kneel downs. So anyway, good for the Browns to put that behind them and move forward with a very impressive victory over their division rivals from Pittsburgh on a short week, players-only meeting held in the aftermath of that debacle. I can't remember, Peter, many players-only meetings after only two games, and they were one and one it, it really smacked of desperation to me, but everything they did this week worked. They took full advantage of their limited opportunity Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to put it behind them. And I got to give the Browns credit for it because I thought they were ripe to lose to the Steelers because, as Chris likes to say, one loss can become two losses. And I didn't think the Browns were mature enough to put that loss behind them. Kudos to them for doing so. Yeah, and the other part of this game that <clears throat> was really, um, I don't know quite how to say it, but entering the game, Mitchell Trubisky really needed a very good game to solidify his place as the Steelers quarterback. And the bothersome thing to me is that he made three or four plays in this game they have sort of figured out now, if you get him out of the pocket and get him being mobile and throwing the ball downfield, okay, if you do that, if you do that, you've got a chance to succeed. They did that a few times last night. But again, again, for Mitchell Trubisky. See, you get him rolling out, you get him making a really nice throw and that incredible catch by Pickens. But... This is where he's at his best. So he made a few of these plays last night. He just didn't make enough of them. And again, I think he certainly didn't play poorly enough to lose his job. And I don't think he played poorly. But he just simply did not make enough plays to get his team back in the groove offensively. And look, last night, you saw again that the Steelers last year, who had an absolutely nightmarish year uh, when they were trying to play the run, that continued again last night. They did a little bit better in the first two games. But again, you play the Browns, you better be able to play the run. They didn't play the run well last night. And so, look, you need a quarterback who's going to be able to put up some points on the board. And last night, they didn't have him. I thought what was really interesting is that at halftime of the game, when uh, the studio slash whatever you call guys when they're all sitting on the field after the game or, or, and during the game, when Richard Sherman, it was pointed out to him that, well, you know, Trubisky had 109 passing yards at halftime. He goes, hey, pop the champagne. And, and I think that the Steelers simply must have higher expectations for their quarterback than they have apparently have had so far with Mitchell Trubisky. There's a lot to react to there, starting with the fact that Tony Gonzalez surely wishes they were in a studio and not at the game. On a September evening in Cleveland when it was 60 degrees, and I understand it was a little windy that made it feel cooler than 60, he's got the big gloves, he's got a blanket, they were busting his chops all night long about it. I started looking at the upcoming schedule. This is just the beginning, Tony. This is just the start <laughs> of what you're going to be experiencing on site and not in studio as you work for Amazon. Um, I want to give Nick Chubb, some love here for what he did last night. Cause you're right. The Steelers run defense failed again for the second time in a four day window 
The run defense against the Patriots was not good. The Patriots controlled the clock down the stretch with a run game that the Steelers couldn't stop. And it was that suffocating drive that really was the dagger for the Steelers when it was 16-14 and the Browns just methodically move and move and chub at the heart of it. He had 23 carries for 113 yards and a touchdown. And one of the things that I think is easy to overlook and not appreciate, Peter, when a guy gets the football and it's between the tackles and he gets hit at the line of scrimmage, but he drives to gain two yards or to gain three yards. And instead of second and 10, it's second and seven. That's a huge difference. And when you do that all the time, those little, very subtle, easy-to-miss advantages, second and six instead of second and nine, third and three instead of third and seven, pushing and pushing and pushing, it's not glamorous, it's not sexy, it goes largely unnoticed, like I said, but it accumulates and it wears down a defense. And it puts the offense in a better position consistently. And you're more likely to string together enough drives to score enough points to win the game. And that's what they did. And that's why I credit the Browns. They knew where the Steelers' weakness was. I thought it was a great observation made during the broadcast by Al Michaels and or Kirk Herbstreit that they were deliberately staying away from 39 in black and gold. Minka Fitzpatrick, he did not affect the game at all. That was smart. Avoid their best defensive player work toward their defensive weakness, and that's how you win the game. And that was smart, far smarter than what we saw on Sunday. And especially if you're going to have some other weaknesses. And look, I thought that Jacoby Brissett played a good game last night. And uh, if he plays those kind of games, limits his mistakes, makes a few plays when he can, I mean, geez, he looked like Tom Brady sneaking the ball last night. I mean, he he had two or three really good sneaks, one of which he almost broke free from, and 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 uh, and got like ten yards. But I do think that when Kevin Stefanski envisions the kind of football they're going to play without Deshaun Watson, they envision exactly the game he played last night. Here's that weird sneak where he got five yards on that play. How bizarre was that play? But And, but, and he did not you know, get tripped up. He deliberately fell down. He could have kept going. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, to me, I think he's got what that play showed me and what he does on his sneak, it shows an intelligent football player because you don't just take the ball and bang into the line. When you are at the line of scrimmage, you know, and Brady has talked about this, you just look for that tiny crease. You just look for that little area that you can make whatever you need to make. And hopefully you get a push in the back and you make it. But last night, Jacoby Ellsbury, Jacoby Ellsbury, Jacoby Brissett showed exactly why coaches like having him on the team. They might like not like having him as a guy who was going to start every game for five years, but they like having him on the team because he's a smart football player. You know, I don't know baseball well enough to know this definitively. I have a feeling there's a Jacoby Ellsbury who plays baseball. Am I right? He did. He played for All the right. Red Sox a long time ago, and I okay. don't know. When I think of Jacoby, I think of Ellsbury. Sorry. These Sorry, especially to all of our fans over in England. Because they'll have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) And I need to apologize to our fans over in England and in Ireland throughout the UK who have been enjoying the program very much live at noon, your time, live, unfiltered, uncensored. Next week, we stand down because the NFL Network production is going to be there live in London all week. However, and I've yet to get a straight answer, but brace yourselves for this. We may be going back to our prior spot. We may not be live anymore. Even though I was told unequivocally we're going to be live all season, that apparently is ending. I can't get a straight answer as to why. Don't take it out on me. Don't email me your complaints. Email them to Sky. They're the ones who told me we're live all season, and now we're not. Take it up with them. I don't have time for it, and it wasn't my call. All right. 
The Browns, moving forward, they get a couple days off. They go to Atlanta. It's another game they could win. They get the 3-1. and one. They got the Chargers coming to town week five. I don't know about that one, but that was the one game they won. Remember the year they went 0-16? The year before that, they went 1-15 by beating the Chargers late in the year. But all these wins, Peter, before week 13 at Texans, any games they can win, and there aren't a lot of W's when you look at that, just kind of pulsating. They're going to be some tough games coming up for the Browns, but every win they get is money in the bank, money in the bank in advance of Deshaun Watson's return. That's all they can ask for, and they should have three, and I'm already getting emails from some Browns fans who are pissed off we talked about the Jets game. Sorry, Browns fans. Your team should have won. You should be 3-0. and Own it, like Kevin Stefanski is forcing the team to own his mistake, but they're winning. They're putting them together. They're stringing them along, and then they'll have Deshaun Watson for the stretch run, so Good news so far for the Browns. And last night's game, I think, was their most impressive and complete game of the season. They tried to blow the game in Carolina. They did blow the game against the Jets. They did not give the Steelers an opportunity to take a win away from the Browns last night. So I'm trying to praise the Browns, Nick. Nick, I know you weren't happy I talked about the Jets game. But if they had talked about it last night, I wouldn't have needed to say anything today. I feel like nobody has, has really drilled down on what happened in that game. I feel better that we have, and I feel better about the Browns now, and I think they'll beat the Falcons, and then they get into some of the meat of the schedule, and we'll see what they're really made of while they wait for Deshaun Watson to return, Peter. Look, the bad part of their schedule, I always thought this at the beginning of the year, and then especially after the suspension came down. Can we put the schedule graphic back up one more time? But you look at the, at, at the games just before Deshaun Watson gets back. I mean... At Dolphins, at Bills, Buccaneers at home. Now, I'm not saying they're going 0-3, but I doubt they're going to be favored in any one of those games. Who knows? I, we don't know what's going to happen to the Bucks in the intervening time. But it's hard for me to imagine that any of those games you look at on the schedule and you say, well, that's a win. Those are all really, really tough games. And so it'll be almost like Deshaun Watson to the rescue by the time he comes back. But I will just say it again. If Jacoby Brissett plays the way he played last night, this is a team that's going to be a bit of a problem. Now, look, the other thing is, I think they need their defensive weapons, and and they may have gotten two major linebacker injuries last night, Mike, which which really could hurt them going forward. It'll be lucky they have the mini-buy now so that maybe they get their guys a little healthy, but... They need Jacoby Brissett to not turn the ball over and to make the kind of winning plays he made in that game last night. And, you know, last night, Miles Garrett played. He was, at least seemed to be. And he ultimately wasn't on the Invisible. injury report. But he seemed to be a little banged up. He seemed to be not himself last night against the Steelers. And you would think that that would be a situation where it opens the door for the other team to win the game. But it did not. I want to pivot to the Steelers. But before I do, let me just say this. I'm already getting emails from Sky viewers telling me they're going to email Sky. You don't need to tell me. You don't, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. We love you. You don't need to tell me. Tell them. I don't, I don't want to be involved in this exchange. Take it up with them. After the game, they took up with Mike Tomlin the question of whether or not he would be making a quarterback change during this mini-buy that they have because their real buy doesn't come until week nine. Here's Tomlin on whether or not the shift will be made from Mitch Trubisky to the rookie Kenny Pickett. I'm not in that mindset. Um, I'm interested in reviewing this tape and looking at the totality of it and figuring out how we collectively get better. So answer that question is definitively no. I thought he made some plays, man, but we all collectively came up short. And, and so, you know, that's how we measure performance, man. Winning is our business and we didn't handle business. And so we don't, you know, break that apart and look for the feel good. Now, look, Peter, you touched on this, and I really want to delve into it more deeply now. Trubisky was not playing well the first two games. He was not pulling the trigger on his opportunities. He was thinking too much. He was waiting too long. Somebody got the message to him because, and I wrote this last night before the game, the talk is growing within the building. And clearly, outside the building, outside the building, they want to fire the offensive coordinator, Matt Canada. Folks, as I said yesterday, you don't have a backup offensive coordinator. You do have a backup quarterback. 
And if your receivers are saying they're open, that doesn't mean the play call is bad. That means the play execution is bad. So the obvious candidate for replacement is the quarterback. And somebody got the message through to Trubisky last night. You can't hold the ball. You can't deliberate. You have to assume these guys are open, even if they don't look open to you. For example, the George Pickens catch that we saw earlier, and we'll probably see again, because it was one of the best catches you will ever see. And the more you watch it, the more impressive it gets. As Pickens lays out backward, OBJ style, and makes a one-handed catch, falling to the ground while he's flat in the air, horizontal. This is incredible. You see the little moving out of the pocket, like Peter said, smart by Trubisky. And what the hell is that catch by George Pickens? So those guys are open even when they don't seem to be open. And that catch was as good as any you'll ever see watching football at any level. Now, Peter, okay, so the Mike, problem is, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, everybody is going to start talking about, you know, comparing that to the Odell Beckham Jr. catch, and they should do that. This is why, now look, the Odell Beckham catch was for a touchdown. It was on the right on the goal line tightly covered, a huge play in that game. So I get you want to make that a part of it. But on just the discussion, you know, Andy's getting interfered with, you know. But, I mean, that was an incredible catch. So, so again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that the Odell Beckham Jr. catch wasn't a great catch. I mean, it wasn't one of the greatest catches in history because it was. But I am going to make one point about this catch. And can we show this one more time? Yes. Watch the Pickens catch. This ball, you, Odell Beckham Jr. is looking at the ball the whole time. You know, and George Pickens is looking over his shoulder. And then the ball just arrives. And he's got to both find the ball, you know, just out of the corner of his eye. And then after he finds the ball, while diving, he's got to get the ball to come in somehow. So to me... It might be a harder catch, Mike, just simply because Odell Beckham Jr. basically can see the ball the whole time. And Pickens has got to just catch it out of the corner of his eye and then catch it. I don't think either catch is any more difficult than the other. But I do think that the circumstances of Pickens' catch, to me, makes it a harder catch. Well, and Peter, that's an excellent point. Also, look at how Pickens has to change his body momentum. Beckham did not have to do that. Yeah. That makes it even more athletic. When you're going straight down the field and you aren't even stopping on a dime, there is no dime, there is no stop. You are essentially in midair twisting your body away from the momentum you generated by running down the field. That is the kind of athletic ability that very few human beings possess. And that gets back to the point where Trubisky just has to let it rip because even if your guy's not open, he'll catch the ball. But, but, there was a play. As the Steelers had the ball, the drive before the Browns methodically went down the field to score the touchdown that was really the dagger that made it 23-14. to Deontay Johnson had a chance to make a less difficult but not easy catch. They were calling it a drop. Herbstreet said he should have caught it. It's still a tough catch. He was being covered by Denzel Ward. The ball comes in. You maybe see it late. You know, when someone's doing all this and moving their arms around, it, it kind of makes it harder to see the ball and catch the ball. Could he have caught it? Yes. Should he? I'm not ready to say he should have, but he could have. And the ball was there. He makes that catch. We may have a different outcome last night. That's just an example of how they fight and they scratch and they claw for three hours. And it's a play here. It's a play there. That ball gets caught. We may have a different outcome to last night's game, Peter. Well, you know, probably you could look at a few of those plays and find similar reactions. And look, Deontay Johnson, you know, is is trying to permanently shed his reputation as the big ball dropper from whatever it was three years ago. So anytime there's a ball in his area code, you, you know, he's going to want to catch that to show that, okay, he's over the dropsies. And so, like, the way I sort of looked at that play, and I recall the play, 
I think it's one of those that I immediately, I'm not saying flushed, but I immediately thought, man, if he caught that, that would have been a fantastic catch. But I don't look at it and say, man, that contributed to the loss. Of course it did, but it's not a play that generally you expect a receiver to make. At least, I I doubt you'd expect a receiver to make that play 50% of the time or more. Oh, I agree with you completely. It's not like the Irv Smith drop on Monday night that took the air out of the balloon as the Vikings were trying to narrow the margin from 14 to 7 just before halftime. And it just felt like one of those moments where you have to take advantage of it. And if you don't, it changes everything in a negative way. It was an opportunity, but it wasn't mandatory for Deontay Johnson. But I raise that because how much can you blame what happened last night on Trubisky? This put Mike Tomlin in the most awkward possible situation where they lost last night, but not because Trubisky played poorly. So now, as Tomlin thinks of all the things he's got to fix over the next nine days, quarterback is no longer at the top of the list. They got other things they got to fix. More important things like, you know, defending the run. And, And so I understand why Tomlin continues to be so strident in his support of Mitchell Trubisky. Again, I don't know whether or not these are decisions made by him or higher up. Art Rooney, I think, keeps a spoon in the stew at all times that he deliberately wants no one to see. And at some point, it does become a business proposition. If your fans start to not show up for games, if your fans who don't go to the games anyway stop watching on TV and they want Kenny Pickett, and they're loud about demanding Kenny Pickett. At some point, you have to give them what they want because this is an entertainment business. I know it's a sport, and there's all sorts of intricacies and X's and O's and this and that, but you want people to give their money, their time, and their attention to your product, and at some some point, they're going to revolt if they don't get what they want. Peter, look, if they don't do it now, and I'll take Tomlin at his word that he's not going to suddenly show up today and say, after reviewing the film, I've decided to make a change, or someone above me has decided to make the change. If they don't do it now for week four against the Jets, they've got this unexpected murderer's row. The schedule morphing from, okay, in May, to, oh, crap, in September, at the Bills, Bucks at home, at the Dolphins, at the Eagles, then they're by. I don't think you throw Kenny Pickett into the mix when you're going through what's coming after you play the Jets. Do you? Probably not, Mike. But, uh, I mean, at some point, especially if there is a, a feeble offensive effort against the Jets, I just don't think Mike Tomlin is the kind of guy who's going to say, boy, we got a tough schedule coming up. I'm not putting the kid in there. First of all, Kenny Pickett started a 1,000 games already on the major college level. And I'm not saying that equates to going to play the Buffalo Bills. It doesn't. But I do know just from talking to people in and around the draft that Kenny Pickett definitely has sort of this sort of fearless mentality. And I don't think he's going to be cowed by going up against either great quarterbacks or great teams. That's one. Second, the Steelers in three games against not a murderer's row of defensive teams. But in three games, they've, had, they've scored four offensive touchdowns. Mike, they've scored 17 points in the second half of three games. And that is not going to win you any games. That's not going to beat the New York Jets. So, you know, they better hope that somehow, some way, they can figure out a way to beat the Jets. And I know that that sounds ridiculous, but for a team that has scored four offensive touchdowns in three games and has been mostly feeble on offense for three games, no game's a gimme. No game's a lock. I don't count on them beating the Jets. I think they probably will. But I certainly don't think that is uh, is a sure thing, and so I think I think Tomlin does not make a quarterback change this week. Okay, and if he doesn't, of course I find it hard to believe he would make a quarterback change after the Jets. But if Trubisky plays poorly against the Jets, 
I don't care what the schedule is after that. You know, the future is now. And so I, I, I will not be surprised if Trubisky plays poorly against the Jets, which what's poorly? Under 175 yards passing, no touchdowns, uh, you know, stop and start on offense the whole way. I would not be surprised if he puts in picket, regardless of how difficult the schedule is. Talk about baptism by blast furnace. My goodness, if that's what happens, it makes for an interesting story, and we see what the kid can do, and his life is only going to get easier after those first few games of starting, and then he gets the bye week to settle down and regroup. But this is not going well for the Steelers so far. They could have won on Sunday against the Patriots, had some uncharacteristic lapses that contributed to the defeat. You've got to have total team effort, offense, defense, special teams to win if you're the Steelers. Last night they could have won as well. And it just shows you how how closely packed these teams are. And the challenge is to reverse the narrative once you start losing games. We'll see if the Steelers can do it. I want to go back to what we were discussing earlier. And we'll do the reset, the palate cleanse, by hearing from Jacoby Brissett, the Browns quarterback for now, on whether he's playing his best football that he's ever played. Here, here it is. The locker room was just kind of singing your praises a bit. The word that came up a lot was poise. I'm curious, just how do you feel you're playing right now? And do you feel like you're playing some of your best ball? Uh, I, I don't really like get into this game to judge myself. I, 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 am, I am just going out there and giving my best. And um, each and every day I try to do that as, as many times as possible, is just go out there and do my best. And I let those guys speak for me. Um, if I was in this to speak about myself, then I, would be, I wouldn't be who I am. Uh, so um, I'm just looking forward to getting back to it next week. There's a maturity, there's a calm, there's a leadership there. He's 29 years old. They said on the broadcast last night, the other players call him uncle. And he's only 29. But he's been around, he's seen some things, he's had the highs and lows, the ups and downs. And here's my question to you, Peter. How many wins do the Browns have to have for there to at least be a conversation as to whether Brissett should continue when Deshaun Watson walks back through the door ready to go face the Texans, and he hasn't played since a cameo appearance at the start of the preseason. And before that, he hadn't played in a year and a half. And you got a guy who's been going every week, playing well. How many wins? Is it six? Is it seven? At what point? Is it five? At what point do we say, we may be better off with the guy who's been playing? I asked Kevin Stefanski that question, Mike, uh, on, I believe it was August 21st. They had just played Philadelphia in a preseason game. And after the game, I sat with Stefanski in his office and we talked about this. And he made it very clear that in that, uh, you know, when Deshaun Watson comes back, he is playing. And we'll see. It's, it's easy to say that on August 21st. And I don't doubt Stefanski. I think he almost certainly is playing. But I also think that if you're, let's say, 7-3 and three at the time of that game, it at least has to be a discussion. Because, Mike, I think, I think the one thing that, that people have not talked about enough is that if you have not played in a football game for 100 weeks, for 700 days, which is exactly how long it will have been since you last played in a football game, and that'll be the case for Deshaun Watson when presumably he gets under center in Houston in December. If you have not played a football game in that long, you have to ask yourself the question, it'd be like asking a starting pitcher who's been out for a year and a half to come in and throw seven innings, you know, in his first game back. It's probably totally unrealistic to do. But, but I, I understand exactly what you're saying about this. And I think that that's a problem that Kevin Stefanski would absolutely love to have. But I don't think 
whether it's one week or two weeks, unless it is like a Dak Prescott, Tony Romo situation. I don't think, I think it is highly, highly unlikely that they would consider, that they will consider continuing to play Brissett. And certainly if Brissett plays one or two weeks after Watson is ready, I don't think he's going to stay in the lineup. And let me just say one other thing. I don't know who asked the question to Jacoby Brissett. You know, either, I forget, are you playing your best football? Are you playing some of your best football or whatever it was? Just remember, when Andrew Luck dropped the bombshell on the Indianapolis Colts in August 2019, and Jacoby Brissett, to the shock of all, started playing and played that entire season. Remember, he started that year five and two. 14 touchdowns, three interceptions. And a lot of people in Indianapolis were saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, maybe this guy is our answer. Because for for seven weeks, he played like an above average starting quarterback in the NFL. Now, it didn't continue that way. We all know that. But my point is, Jacoby Brissett is capable of playing football at a good to very good level in the NFL. And I'm not saying that's good enough to be anybody's quarterback for a long time. I am saying that if he plays like he did last night and starts stacking games like that over and over again against a tough schedule, mind you, but if he does that, he is going to give Kevin Stefanski a decision that he's going to have to make come December. And I hope that at the appropriate time, a conversation is had, the due diligence is exercised, and a decision that is made based upon the best interests of the Browns right now. What's in the best interest of the team? Is it in their best interest to continue with a guy who the locker room has rallied around and is winning games? And again, it all hinges on how many more wins they can get between now and early December. They have eight more games to go. They're two and one. If it's five, six, seven wins. And and there aren't a lot of wins, as we said earlier, screaming out of that upcoming schedule. But I hope that they have the conversation about what's in the best interest of the team, acknowledging your point that Deshaun Watson is coming in relatively cold. And I hope that it's not just a knee-jerk, absolutely positively, it will be Deshaun Watson because ownership paid all that money and ownership dealt with all that crap And ownership wants this guy in there no matter what. I hope this doesn't become an exercise in dysfunctional teams doing dysfunctional things. And it would be the height of dysfunction to just say, hey, we went and got this guy. We're using him, period. I hope that's not what the Browns do. I hope that's not the reasoning, Peter, in the notion that no matter what Watson plays, it can't be no matter what. What if they win all the games between now and then? There has to be a point where... They've done well enough with Jacoby Brissett that you at least entertain the possibility that you should continue to play him while Deshaun Watson works his way into game readiness. And it would be the height of stupidity for the Browns to not at least have that conversation. I think it's putting the cart before the horse, another horrible cliche, because it's hard if you put the cart before the horse, then the horse would have to push the cart. But anyway, putting the cart before the horse, (laughs) I do think is a little bit premature here because I just can't imagine Jacoby Brissett winning a bunch of those games that you just put up on the board. Right. I can't imagine Jacoby. Now, look, if Jacoby Brissett beats the Bucs and wins at Miami and at Buffalo, okay, then all of a sudden, the landscape has changed radically. But I'm always of the opinion, let's let him do it first. It reminds me of the the headline, and I forget where I saw it, before like entering week one of this season. I forget who wrote this story. Aiden Hutchinson is better than you think. And I said to myself, I mean, there haven't been any games yet. Could we at least allow him to play some games before we say he's better than you think. And anyway, I do think that sometimes 
we enjoy looking at the next two months before they happen and start to say, well, what if? Well, of course, what if? If he beats Buffalo, Miami, and 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 Cincinnati or Baltimore and 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 Tampa, of course they're going to have a decision to make. But I, I just think "if" is a very big word in that uh, conversation. I agree with you completely, Peter. But I also say this: there is a fine line between putting the cart before the horse and engaging in strategic planning. And at how much energy does it take? to have a five-minute conversation among the brain trust of the Browns that we need to have, we're going to need to have a plan. If we keep winning these games, and we know that's a big if, but we have to be flexible. We can't just have this knee-jerk Deshaun Watson comes back depending upon. So we need to at least be thinking about that. In your quiet moment, while you're trying to fall asleep at night, while you're driving to work, whatever it may be, at least entertain what our strategy is going to be because we need to have a strategy to get all the way back to where we started this and to piss off our good friend Nick, who didn't like us talking about the loss to the Jets. If they had a little more strategic thinking in that moment, they'd be 3-0 and right now. I'm just saying strategic planning, have a plan for everything, and be ready for all contingencies on the flow chart. Even though we're not there yet, you can be thinking now. And the decision may very well take care of itself. But you have to have at least the door open to the possibility of continuing to play Jacoby Brissett. If you keep it slammed shut and say, no way, no how, will Deshaun Watson not play, you could be setting yourself up for a huge mistake. I want to give a little praise to Amari Cooper before we take our break here. Because there were questions about whether or not when you take him from a controlled environment, good weather, artificial surface, and you put him in Cleveland on grass. You do the breakdown of his statistical achievement over the course of his career. Typically when he's played, when it's not ideal conditions, when it's on grass, he has not fared well. Well, he fared pretty well last night with seven catches for 101 yards and a touchdown. So it could be he's adapting to his new environment. He's growing. He's maturing. Whatever the case may be, he's become by far the most reliable target for Jacoby Brissett. And I know that David Njoku had his catches too. And what a projection they made, paying him based upon what they planned to do with him, not what he'd already done in the NFL. Because he got a big contract that his achievements didn't really justify, but they are now. But Cooper, credit to him. He's reliable. He's open. There was a play at one point. I think it was... And it it starts to bleed together. I don't know if it was the touchdown driver earlier, but they were bottled up with a third and third and manageable. And they did a little play action and Cooper crossing left to right was wide open. I mean, he was wide open all night. So credit to Amari Cooper for being uh, the kind of the kind of player that the Cowboys never should have given up on. Because in hindsight, 20 million a year, when we look at what these other receivers are getting is kind of a bargain. Cooper is earning his keep in Cleveland, and he was great last night. Without him, I don't know if they can pull that off, even with that running game. You know, for a guy who, and I like Amari Cooper, uh, but for a guy who's going to make $53 million on the cap, that's what his charge is over the next two and three-quarter years, um, he needs to make those plays. And they need to be able to count on him to be a, a number one receiver and a big play number one receiver. And so to me, I don't look at last night saying, oh man, what a fantastic game for Amari Cooper. As much as I say, those are the kind of games he needs to have to justify the deal that was made for him to bring him to Cleveland and to have him, Mike, just, just know this, the next two years, after this year, he's 23.8 and 23.8 million on the cap. So I, I agree. Good for him. Played very well last night, and they really, really need him. And so to me, that's what he should be doing. Oh, hey, it's definitely what he should be doing, and it's what they're paying him to do. All I know is there was a concern out there, and it was legitimate before the season began, that this guy's not going to perform the way you think he is when you take him out of a place like AT&T Stadium in Dallas because historically he has not been great when they played on the road on, the road on grass. But uh, he's answering those questions. There was some concern that maybe the Browns blew it, and it looks like the Browns didn't blow it with Amari Cooper. Let's go ahead and 
take a break. Battle of the old guys this weekend in Tampa Bay as Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady get together, possibly for the last time. We'll get you ready for that one when PFT Live, presented by Google Pixel, continues right after this. For you, even though you're not going against the other quarterback, right, you're preparing for the Green Bay defense, is there still something about playing one of the best in the game? Yeah, for sure. He's an amazing player. Has been for a long time, so I love watching him play, and uh, he's from California, too, so I feel like we always have a little bit of a connection. He's an older guy now. Um, He's been a great player in the same place for a long time, so there definitely has some challenges with that, and um, but he's navigated them pretty well, and He's done a great job, leads the team, and, you know, they've won a lot of games since he's been there, you know, and I knew Brett pretty well. You know, those two guys are pretty, two great quarterbacks for a long period of time in one place. Are you feeling nostalgic at all that this may indeed be the final time that you and Tom Brady and your teams can talk against one another? Not really. Uh, I have a lot of respect for the history of the game and my part in it, and the game will keep going long after Tommy and I are done playing. I will say this, Peter King, as we continue on this Friday edition of PFC Live presented by Google. I am no fashion expert, but I will say the backward hat with the tuft of hair carefully manicured through the hole at age 45, that's a bold choice by Tom Brady. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, you well, know what hit me? I, I'll tell you ahead. what hit me about this game and this rivalry when I was thinking about it the other day, and I wrote a little bit about this in my column, is that I find it fairly impressive of all the, oh, my God, Brady's still doing it at 45, blah, blah, blah. Since Tom Brady turned 41, he's faced Aaron Rodgers in the Green Bay Packers three times. He's 3-0. and and he's put up 31, 38, and 31 points in those three games. And, and, and look, obviously he's not playing against Aaron Rodgers. But when you play the Green Bay Packers, you know that you have to put points up. Just the same way when you're Aaron Rodgers and you're playing Tom Brady. you got to put points up. And he has consistently done that you know, against Rodgers and against the Packers. And that impresses me. Now, it will really impress me this week if he puts up 30 because his number one receiver just might be Cole Beasley in this game, who he met 10 minutes ago. And so this is, it's a home opener, the emotion, blah, 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 blah. But I have a feeling that the Bucs are going to have to wear name tags in this game for all the people who are going to be new and people really don't know. Yeah, you've got Mike Evans suspended. That was upheld earlier this week. He won't play. Chris Godwin, hamstring injury, coming off of the torn ACL. It doesn't look good for him. Julio Jones, who the hell knows when he's going to be able to practice or play. Scotty Miller's on the injury report now with a calf. Yeah, in comes Cole Beasley. People wonder why Tom Brady practiced on Wednesday when he supposedly got every Wednesday off for the rest of his life. You got to get to know Cole Beasley somehow, some way. Got to get on the same page with a guy that you've never played football with before in your life, and it is going to be a challenge. But the Buccaneers have pivoted, Peter, toward this Todd Bowles mindset of run the ball, play defense. Run the ball, play defense. And, yes, they still have Tom Brady. And, yes, they throw the ball sometimes. But it's not no risk it, no biscuit anymore. And that – that pivot to more of the old school approach. Well, they're they're two and zero. They gutted out the win against the Saints when it just felt like it wasn't their day. I, there are going to be times throughout the course of a seventeen game season for a given team when it doesn't feel like their day, and when you can find a way to reverse that in the moment and take a game that felt like well we're just going to lose and turn it into a win. That's the kind of team that's going to be hanging around when. Week 18 rolls around, and it's time to figure out where you are on the playoff tree, and I think the Bucks are going to be there. And, I, you know, regardless of the questions about Tom Brady, and he does look skinnier than he ever has to the point where it's concerning, but he's still Tom Brady. 
and that's not going to change. And we saw the Tom Brady fire on Sunday. He still loves football. He still loves to win. He's still going to do what he has to do to help his team prevail. And I'd be surprised if they don't find a way to beat the Packers. Boy, this is a tough one. I, I probably would pick Tampa in part because, you know, I don't know that I trust the, the, the Green Bay offense yet either. I think each offense is really trying to find itself and what they do best. And I totally agree with you. I think we could see in maybe the last Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady game ever, we could see a game where of all the times they have ever met uh, against each other, we could see more rushing attempts than there ever has been. Because I won't be surprised if Matt LaFleur says our best way in this game is to keep the ball away from Brady. So let's run it 42 times if we can. And, and that's not going to be easy against that defense either. You know, Vita Vey is going to have something to say about that. But I would also make this point as you look at the offensive line, I would also make the point that, you know, every smart offensive coach does what he feels that his offense can do best. And in this game right now, I think what Green Bay does best until Rodgers gets up to speed with his receivers, they really have a reliable running game uh, like they haven't had in, in some time, you know, this reliable. I'll say one other thing about Brady. You know, earlier this week, I was just looking at their games and looking at his numbers and the fact that, man, it is so weird. Brady's starting two games in a row. I know they've had a bunch of injuries, but... 39 points in two games is just so odd for Brady, you know? And and I looked at it, and he's averaging 6.6 yards per attempt. And of all the stats and all the new wave, new age, funky stats that you hear, DVOA and, and wins above replacement, which used to be a baseball stat, but now they've turned it into a football stat too. And I respect all these stats. I do because they all say something. One of the stats that is an old-time stat that, that guys still look at a lot is yards per attempt. And Brady's yards per attempt is usually in the high sevens or eights. Okay, and now he's 6.5 or 6.6. And that really has to change for that offense to become a more prolific offense, Mike. When Kevin Gilbride was one of the contributors to our old afternoon show, Pro Football Talk, he said that one of the statistics that coaching staffs look at more than any other is yards per attempt. And if you are above seven, your offense is clicking. And now it's kind of a given you're going to be at seven. It's more like eight or nine yes. yards per attempt. So 6.6, that's glaring, especially for a guy like Brady. Also, Peter, we need to point this out. He's got an issue with his ring finger on his throwing hand. And Rick Stroud, our friend from the Tampa Bay Times, reported that yesterday during the portion of practice the media could see he was clearly bothered by it, shaking it. They sprayed something on it at some point. And, of course, when he's asked about it, he says he's fine. And when the injury report comes out for the Buccaneers Wednesday and Thursday, there's no mention of any finger injury for Tom Brady. This is the team that concealed a fully torn MCL for all of the 2020 season for Tom Brady. So don't expect the injury report to tell us anything but we know there's something up with the finger because one of the reporters covering the team saw it and shared it with anyone who may be interested in whether or not the 45-year-old Tom Brady is truly 100% right now. Here's the other aspect of it, and I, I agree that that is something very much worth watching. For those who don't really understand or who don't know all that much about yards per attempt, Yards per attempt essentially is it shows whether you're getting the ball downfield at all. We, you know, if you, if you have a very low yards per attempt, you're basically dinking and dunking and you're not being efficient throwing the football. And just as, as an example, Mike, in Tom Brady's last year in New England, okay, uh, where everybody said, well, boy, he's going downhill. And where Bill Belichick, much to Robert Kraft's chagrin, said, we'll be fine without Brady and let's let him go and let's start to move on. You know, maybe he's in decline. And I'm not, I'm, I'm putting words in Bill Belichick's mouth. I don't know what he said, you know, but I do know that 
his actions said, we can let Brady go. In 2019, he had 6.6 yards per attempt. And by the end of that year, Bill Belichick was ready to let him go. So then he goes and gets reborn in Tampa, and he's then in the mid-sevens over the last two years. And now he's back down to 6.6. And again, small sample size. Beat up receiver core. Okay, I want to wait until they get uh, all their receivers back or at least, you know, Chris Godwin. He needs Chris Godwin, period. That is his guy. That is his new age Edelman. And so he needs to get him back and he needs to get Julio Jones to do something. Okay, so I understand why it's at 6.6 right now. And I don't think Brady is falling off a cliff. You have to look at this in perspective. But let's wait and see what happens. But, he, but that number just has to go up. And uh, I agree with you completely. And we'll see. We'll see what they can do against the Green Bay Packers. It could be a grinded out, old school, low scoring game. And it could be another game of 20 or under for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. One thing Chris Sims has said all week, though, as we talk about Rodgers and Brady, this is a far cry from Mahomes and Allen at this point. Those two are on a higher plane. They are arguably number one and number two. Take your pick as to who you want as number one in the NFL. Josh Allen takes his undefeated Bills on a short week to Miami to face the surprisingly unbeaten Dolphins and the surprisingly improved Tuatonga Vailoa. Here is Dolphins coach Mike McDaniel on the growth he has seen in quarterback Josh Allen. You know, saw his growth in Wyoming. That's what was really cool was, it, it, you know, it was a, an example of, you know, young in his career, the guy's a giant with the giant arm, but, you know, he had kind of like a, um, I don't know, a stigma about accuracy or something that um, I think each year in his college career he drastically improved. Um, you can tell, which was a big deal to me with him coming out because you learn a lot. Um, not by hearing, but by seeing. And what you could see was um, a guy diligently working at his craft who's however old he is. So um, fast forward to, to the league, and I think we've all been witnesses to, you know, he's steadily become, you know, one of the best players in the National Football League. Easily could argue he's the best one. Um, and that it's not because he's God's gift. It's because he's unbelievably talented, but it's because you can tell more than that, it's because he works at his craft. And he keeps getting better and better and better. We saw in year three, he suddenly became a guy that was making it happen. He was noticeably different. And he's just built on that ever since. And he keeps getting better and better, Peter. Josh Allen right now, I don't know who I would say is better between him and Mahomes. I'll say it's a tie for number one. Allen is spectacular. And uh, got it done on Monday night. Got it done week one. Playing against some very good teams. This is not going to be easy. It's going to be hot. The Dolphins are aggressive. They're confident. But there's just something about this Bills team. A A point that we made earlier in the week. It almost feels like, you know, back in the 80s or 90s, you would feel like there was a team that was just going to kick the crap out of everyone all year long. It's it's bunched up since then, and that's good for the game. This just feels like an old-school team that's going to kick the crap out of everyone all season long. It looks like it, Mike. And on one hand, you say it's a 17-game season, and you never know. But I, I, I look at when I went to their training camp at St. John Fisher College in July— You know what I walked away saying? The depth on this team is unbelievable. And I'll give you two examples, okay? You look what happened last Monday when uh, on Saturday before the game, Gabriel Davis, who is in the top five of number two receivers in the NFL right now, everybody said, oh, he's going to develop into one of the best. No, right now he he is one of the best Number two receivers. And to me, he's one and one A uh, with Stephon Diggs. But you watch him play, and he makes such huge plays. Five touchdown catches in two playoff games last year. And so anyway, he sprains his ankle, right? 
And the Buffalo Bills, wow, we're not going to have Gabe Davis on, on Monday. Wow, what, what are we going to do? So they go out and they score 41 points against the Tennessee Titans, who even though they got 41 points put up on them, they're still probably a top 10 to 12 defense in the NFL. That's number one. And number two, look how they've played in the secondary without Tredavious White, who is a top 12 to 15 corner in the NFL. And he's been on the pup list and he hasn't been available. So he's gone for at least this month. And so if you look at what they have done without two of their absolute standard bearers, you know, that's, it just shows that their depth, you know, Brandon Bean, whatever you can say about, uh, about who has built a good roster in the NFL and over time, we've praised John Schneider for that and Eric DaCosta and, and, and Ozzie Newsom and, and all these guys. Brandon Bean right now has built the best roster top to bottom in football. Kansas City's close, but in my opinion, you know, Buffalo's the best roster top to bottom in football. And the depth on that roster is going to keep them in the pennant race, even if they get significant injuries, in my opinion. And you know who's looming out there for both the Buccaneers and the Bills? We assume he's going to sign with the Rams. And maybe that's the proper assumption, maybe to the point of a presumption. Hell, they have the locker with his name on it still at the training facility. But Odo Beckham Jr. has been linked to the Bills. Vaughn Miller's been recruiting him. And Brandon Bean hasn't ruled it out. And at some point, Tom Brady and OBJ maybe finally get together after all these years of this mutual admiration. We saw it before the game in New Orleans on Sunday. OBJ was on the sidelines there, not at the Rams game. He was at the Saints-Bucks game. That could be a difference maker for the Bills at some point, too. When he's healthy. When he's healthy. But could you imagine that offense with Gabe Davis, Stephon Diggs? You throw OBJ into the mix? Holy crap. But we'll see. Somebody's going to get him at some point. And we saw what a difference he made for the Rams once he got up to speed last year. They need to move at the right time to get OBJ onto the roster because he could be the guy who becomes that secret weapon that helps lift a team. But right now, the Bills don't need much lift. The Dolphins are going to have their hands full. Peter, how surprised are you by what we've seen from Tua Tonga-Vailoa this year, culminating in that six-touchdown pass performance on Sunday? When Mike McDaniel took over, and Mike, I talked to McDaniel after the game on Sunday. When he took over, one of his big goals was to absolutely get the most out of this quarterback that he knew it, that a lot of people had questions about. If you weren't in the Grand Tuanon Society, you had questions <laughs> about Tuatonga Valoa. And quite honestly, I think Mike McDaniel probably had questions about him too. And it didn't matter what anybody thought about it. Mike McDaniel knew, he knew that Tua Tagovailoa had enough arm to be uh, to 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 be really good in the McDaniel offense. So he had enough arm, and now that he had two incredible downfield weapons, uh, you know, obviously in uh, in Waddle and in um, uh, Tyreek Hill, I think one of the things that he wanted to do, as you watch him air it out to Tyreek Hill. He wanted to make sure that he convinced Tua, both in practice and how he called plays, that he had faith in his deep arm because Tua knew that everybody questioned his arm, said he didn't have enough arm strength. And Mike McDaniel was going to come in and say, we are going to show that he's got enough arm strength. And I'll just say one other thing, Mike. I find the most interesting thing is that Mike McDaniel right now is kind of one with Tyreek Hill, Tua Tagovailoa, Jalen Waddle. And what I mean by that is the night before the game in their hotel in Baltimore on Saturday night, they talked about this play they had installed and it's called the effort play. When everything seems to not be going well, when you're got third and long or whatever, Let's not try to just move the chains. Let's just say F it and let's go for it. Let's go for it all. And before they left that meeting, Tongavaloa said to McDaniel, hey, I really like that F it play. And that play 
basically isolates Tyreek Hill deep against whatever coverage there's going to be. And Tua basically throws it up, and the Ravens, not to be funny, but the Ravens effed up the coverage, and the effort play ended up with a huge touchdown that turned the tide of this game. So, and what that says to his players is, hey, you trust us. You know that we're going to make these plays if you call them. And it worked in Baltimore. I think that is a tremendous mental psychological lift for the players on that team. The effort play sounds like a more concise title for your favorite play from Super Bowl 54, the old Jet Chip Wasp. Same idea. Same idea. Yeah. It's not working. We're struggling. Let's put it on a T-shirt. Let's, and let's fire it deep. Let's fire it deep to Tyreek Hill and trust that he's going to go get the football and they're not going to be able to cover him. All right, let's take a break. We've got more games to cover. We're going to rip through some of the better games, and there are some good games lurking on the schedule for week three. We'll do that next on PFT Live, presented by Google Pixel. 